Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner, and today I'm joined by Will Travers. Now, Will is the president of the Born Free Foundation, a leading wildlife charity which opposes the exploitation of wild animals in captivity and campaigns to keep them in the wild. Um, Will, welcome. It's great to have you with us on the programme today. Good morning, Scott. Nice to talk to you too. Likewise. Now, um, this podcast, first and foremost, Will, is all about the uh, the topic of leadership. But what does that word leader mean to you? Goodness me. Well, leadership for me really is leadership by example. Um, and, and we've got and we've got so many examples of what I would regard as poor leadership at the moment around the world. Um, people who uh, speculate uh, and and others follow their their example in a, in a not appropriate way. So I think that um, leading by good example, showing that you're prepared to do whatever is necessary to uh, protect the people that need protection, and in the case of Born Free, protect the animals that need protection, um, is key as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And um, considering current affairs um, as well, Will, um, which is, of course, of huge importance, because um, good leadership is under the microscope no more so than now with the fallout of the, uh, the COVID-19 outbreak. So tell me, in trying to lead an organisation of your ilk through this um, time, how has it been for you in the last few weeks? Well, it's been a challenge because, of course, with many field projects, um, my team is often out in various parts of the world, Africa, um, India, Sri Lanka, etc., looking at the work that we do, supporting the work we do, supporting the communities that live in the areas where we try to protect and conserve wildlife. So that's been a huge challenge because there's no travel at all. Mm. Um, But we've maintained very good contact with all our teams in the field. Um, And we've also been able to use this opportunity um, to point out to global leaders, whether it's the World Health Organization or CDC or others, that uh, if, as has been speculated and appears to be true, the source of uh, coronavirus was through a wild animal market in China, and I'm not in any sense blaming the animals, as you can imagine, then we need to change our behavior in order to make sure that this is a lesson we learn and that we uh, do not allow it to happen again and that we stop trading, eating, exploiting wild animals in this way. Absolutely. And to implement those changes, uh, Will, who do you think that that responsibility should fall upon? Well, ultimately, the quickest and most effective way of doing this is through legislation. And China, to be fair, has stepped up and has introduced legislation that will make it virtually impossible to uh, trade, ranch, farm, sell, consume wild animals in uh, in the way that has happened in the past. Um, China is not the only uh, country where this takes place, however, and so we need to have other consumer countries such as, for example, Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, PDR, to also step up and change the way that things are done. This will have a positive impact, I'm absolutely convinced, on people and their welfare, but it will also have a positive impact on biodiversity loss, the the tragedy that is biodiversity loss, which the planet is, um, is confronted with at the moment as a result of human activity. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a real wake up call um, in terms of the environment um, as well, isn't it? Um, in general, and um, that should be something that the um, leaders of the world should really take into account beyond COVID nineteen, shouldn't it? 
It, it should. And I think it's given a lot of people pause for thought. You know, we're now all, a lot of us, um, not the frontline troops, the, the members of the NHS who are doing an extraordinary job looking after um, the sick. But many of us are working from home and many of us are, are discovering that it is possible to do work in a different way, to do work in a way that has less of an impact on the environment. I mean, I am actually at the moment sitting in a house that is only about 14 miles from Gatwick Airport. Normally, uh, in the past, I would expect an airplane to fly over here every 90 seconds. We haven't had a plane today. Now, it, it will not remain exactly like this, but do we all need to get on planes as much as we did in the past, um, you know, several times a year to go on holiday, multiple business trips just for that one-hour meeting in sometimes in Australia, for goodness sake. I think that there's, there's a lot of contemplation and reflection going on, and we should um, institute our own leadership. We should be leaders of our own lives. It's not always about looking to somebody else to tell us what to do. We should be making our own personal leadership decisions for ourselves. Absolutely. It's um, just as much down to individuals as well as a figurehead, isn't it? Because um, leaders are not essentially running businesses, running organisations entirely on their own. It's just as much about the team around them and the ability of the individuals within that team to make their own decisions and lead for themselves, like you say. It's really important. It, it is really important. And, and I think that while governments can set frameworks, um, sometimes governments are actually slow on the uptake. And we've seen that, for example, in the United States, where individual state governors uh, at, at a state level have made much more progressive and aggressive decisions relating to how they're going to tackle coronavirus than the federal government in Washington, D.C., where uh, things have been um, slow, pedantic, confused, and, uh, and, and there is even confusion amongst those who are part of the coronavirus task force as to what the best course of action should be. It's interesting, isn't it, that there have been so many contrasting approaches to uh, deal with the uh, the outbreak. We've seen, for example, some very proactive approaches. Um, even in China, for example, the likes of Xi Jinping, they were very proactive in getting the country into lockdown quite quickly. You could say the same with Italy as well. And even um, in the States, um, even here, um, on the other hand, there have been approaches which have been very much less hands-on, far more tardy in implementing um, tighter and stricter measures. There have been procedures in place, there's been money there, but in many ways in the US, in the UK, we were just waiting to see what happens. Um, if we sort of take that away from politics for just a moment there, Will, do you think that being proactive, getting on top of situations as soon as possible is the best way to go about leading or is it better to let things play out a bit, see how matters develop and take action from there? It's a good question. Um, having worked, I'm going to use the wildlife trade um, as my example, having worked on issues to do with wildlife trade for over 30 years, um, I have always believed that one should take the precautionary approach. And in the absence of solid, reliable information, one should take a precautionary attitude to all sorts of situations. So I'd rather go uh, more precautionary and be proved slightly wrong than less precautionary and be proved wrong, in which case the consequences of inaction or less than effective action or tardy action uh, are going to be, I think, much more severe. Absolutely. So a leader should be much more proactive in this time and essentially live and die by those decisions rather than just kind of rolling with the punches, as it were. 
Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, and, but as I say, you know, government can provide a framework, and we've seen that sort of framework being uh, introduced in the United Kingdom uh, over the last uh, week or a little bit more, where uh, you know, um, health workers have been prioritised, and now there's uh, help for the self-employed. Employers have been given the opportunity to uh, furlough staff. All those kind of things help. Uh, one of the challenges, from my point of view, is that I work in the charity sector and have done for 36 years, and I can see the potential and very devastating impact on the charity sector because, of course, people naturally uh, spend their money where they prioritize most. And at the moment, I don't think that charities are the priority. Uh, I think family, friends, colleagues at work, the National Health Service and others are the priority. And then that may mean that a lot of important work that is done by charities could go to the wall. And the, and the thing is that we need to take a longer view of this. We need to be able to uh, imagine the world after coronavirus and say, well, if important work done by the voluntary sector falls away because of the intense focus on dealing with coronavirus, we may have less to work with when we actually get back to work in a normal capacity. So I think the government uh, and society as a whole needs to take a fairly long, hard look at the long term to make sure that some of the important assets that we have, and I include the charitable sector in that, don't wither in this next three to four months. Absolutely. So um, in summary uh, then, Will, what are your hopes for the uh, the charity sector beyond uh, COVID-19 and what do you hope that the sector can achieve? Because it is a very uncertain time. It is very uncertain. I, I hope that the, the negative impact on, on charities, Bournemouth and many others, will be short-lived. I, I think that there is actually, I think what we've seen here um, over the last month, two months, is a desire by people to engage once more as a community, a community that cares, cares about a range of different issues, cares about their families, their, their friends, their colleagues at work, the way that society operates. Uh, I'm looking for a kinder, more compassionate, more caring society and a more sustainable society that comes out of this dreadful episode that we're confronted with at the moment. And I think that the charity sector has a massive role to play in that because it is generally light on its feet, able to react and able to deliver outstanding results if it's given the resources. Absolutely. And um, if we harness that sense of community, like you say, and people do start to really lead for themselves, um, this can we can really take something positive from all of this, can't we? We can, never forgetting the individual, many, many individual tragedies that are occurring, um, people losing loved ones, um, people having to say goodbye to a loved one as they enter hospital, almost certain that they're never going to come out again. Uh, if they're if they're old and have uh, underlying conditions, which uh, uh, it seems to be, you know, the prevalent situation, there are so many individual charities. But as society as a whole, maybe we can, as you described it, maybe this is the wake up call, and maybe we can reshape the way that we treat ourselves and treat the world in the future. Absolutely. And before we wrap things up, um, Will, um, are there any examples of uh, leaders past or present who we can take inspiration from during this time, do you think, who maybe had an influence on your own career as well? Um, 
I suppose, and it's quite a recent example, uh, I was and remain a big fan of uh, President Obama. Um, I thought that, uh, of course, he was confronted with a multitude of difficult and challenging situations. Of course, it didn't always go as he would wish or as he would like. But as a human being, I think that's what uh, we are crying out for in this world, leadership with a human face. Somebody who's able to empathize and care and sympathize with the human condition. And I thought that as a, as a person and as an orator and as a leader, I thought he was outstanding in those regards. It's um, fantastic that you uh, mentioned uh, President Obama there. And um, how do you think um, he would um, have actually dealt with the, this crisis as well? Because um, I think he would have maybe taken a very different approach to um, his uh, successor. Um, I think he would have taken a different approach. And it's hard to sort of speculate as to what the individual actions would be, but I think he would have probably reacted much more quickly to the situation, been able to perceive the the gravity of the situation and to be able to put the resources in place. But probably the most important thing that he would have done, in my view, is that he would have put a metaphorical arm around the people of America and indeed the people of the world and given them that sense of belonging and it's almost like a group hug mm. to say you're not outside of the envelope you're inside the family and, and you know and I think of that actually in terms of Born Free I think Born Free and what it stands for uh, and the community that it supports and is served by I think of that as a family and maybe that's the, one of the key words that we need to retain and and trust and hold and that is family if we all thought about our fellow citizens as members of an extended family, I think we would do a better job. I um, completely agree with you, Will, and um, it will be interesting to see as well as to how that is um, that vision is uh, borne out over the uh, the next few months. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the program today, and I think it would be fantastic to have you back on in a few months' time to look at this retrospectively and see how that has been borne out and whether we have indeed, as a collective, the human race, taken that um, family sort of feel forward. Thank you so much for coming on, uh, Will. It's been oh, really it's insightful. A pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much for inviting me on, and if the opportunity arises, I'd be delighted to come back that's absolutely wonderful and thank you so much um, for speaking to me um, for the benefit of the uh, the listeners as well um we now hand o- we now hand over to uh, jonathan white for his exclusive interview with england cricket legend sir andrew strauss i hope you enjoy listening just as much as jonathan enjoyed speaking to sir andrew hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ecb Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place. 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but i, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it. 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired. Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about, about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.